talking. Talking, talking. Talking, talking. <laughs> I'm just following. Yeah. Well, I, I want to, uh, you know, start this episode with a toast uh, to all of the posters, all the canvassers, all the callers, all the haters. Bernie fucking won Iowa. Congratulations. Uh, and onward to uh, victory and nice. eventually uh, the seizure of the uh, means of production for the working class. Absolutely. Uh, appropriation for all. Um, Chris, I need you to know something, though. I think that maybe I wasn't like maybe something got lost in translation. But um, when we did the skit about the secret posting army, mm-hmm. that was meant to be like facetious. What? <laughs> like I wasn't like the point of the skit wasn't to actually get people to like angry post. Wait, it was what? Really? <laughs> I'm gonna have to delete so, a lot of things. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. So you're telling me I've been wading into the phalanxes of the Yang Gang, of the Warren stands, of uh, America for Biden, just swinging my claymore, chopping heads for nothing. <laughs> <laughs> You know what? Never mind. Forget it. You're good. You're good, homie. I have I have like a dozen fake accounts that I'm going to need to suspend immediately. (laughs) Chris has been doing the Lord's work, uh, going after the Warren stands, spitting truth at them, uh, making them real angry. And you know that's 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 great, buddy. I'm really. (laughs) (laughs) But I just want to point out that Dave and Brittany have been doing the real work of um, texting, calling for Bernie, and now uh, on a Bernie journey on the streets of uh, Keene, New Hampshire. Hell yeah! Um, So you know, uh, yeah, it's not all about posting people. Yeah, you know, um, I had been doing some more casual phone banking for Bernie doing it like a couple of times a a week um but now i'm pretty much like daily i have to say like if the iowa caucus did anything it made enough people like scared and angry enough that the ranks of the bernie sanders volunteer army have swelled they are they are swole now if you will and um yeah just to be like kind of cringy sincere for a minute if you are on the fence about doing whatever kind of volunteer work for Bernie that you're able to. Not everybody's able to just like talk to strangers. If you can text, if you can, whatever you can do, I really recommend doing it. Um, It feels good. And you get to talk to some very interesting people. And I did have a Trump supporter tell me to suck his dick, but otherwise like the vast majority (laughs) of making America great again. He literally said, so he, he strung me along for like five or six minutes pretending to be a Bernie supporter. And then he said, he said, I have a couple of questions though. And I was like, great. Yeah, shoot. And he goes, would you be offended if I said, make America great again and suck my dick? And then he hung up immediately, which was the only thing about that exchange that pissed me off because he didn't get to hear my cackle. And that (laughs) really upset me. But anyway, I do recommend doing it. And uh, if you have any questions about it, reach out to me. Um, DMs are always open. Slide on in there. But yeah, if you're yeah, if you're on the fence, do it. It's good. It feels good. It's it's uh and it's really really important. And Iowa is just a tiny glimpse of things to come. If you think they're not going to rat fuck us at every possible point in this primary, wake up and know that that is exactly what's going to happen. And the only thing that we can do is just work harder, uh work like you're 10 points behind and never give up, never surrender. You love to see it. 
I went from being incredibly mad uh, on the night of the caucus with all the uh, chicanery uh, to just crossing over a threshold of uh, frustration where it went into sort of an elation because I realized that the, you know, facade is crumbling away and these people have nothing and they're going to lose. And every single thing that they did where they were like, oh, actually, we're issuing a correction on day three and a half uh, where yeah. we're, we're, oh, no, we're re-canvassing. Uh, sorry, the report, uh, results are t- still too Bernie to uh, to announce fully. Yeah. <laughs> and then AP pulling out the, sorry, we're just not ever going to announce a winner of this, the first and most important. What caucus? Iowa <laughs> <laughs> uh, caucus never happened. Uh, did not take place. Uh, you know what I've noticed? Is that there's a fourth person in the room right now. Yeah, we've been wildly rude yeah. thus far in this episode. <laughs> Hi, I'm, I'm not supposed to talk about politics. Because I'm, I'm not an American citizen. It would be foreign. It's not it for foreign you. intervention. Yeah, yeah. No, we actually I, I'm a foreigner. You. Yeah, we, we invited uh, <laughs> uh, esteemed Dr. Richard Morita onto the podcast today to do some election interference um, from the lovely uh, country of Kenya. And Richard and I work together at a company called Crystal IS, where we uh, make UVC LEDs to replace mercury lamps to disinfect water and uh, enable a uh, water purification and surface um, disinfection um, technology. That so, that, so that staff infection you do not have? Thank Chris and Richard. <laughs> well, we were actually talking earlier um, uh, about the possibility and, uh, and u- utility of ultraviolet disinfection for uh, virus decontamination. And this uh, coronavirus horrible that has come really shut down the Wuhan province in China. I think like 40,000 people or something have been uh, diagnosed. At yeah, this nearly time. a thousand deaths, I think. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's pretty dark. But, you know, one potential method of doing that disinfection of, you know, doorknobs, various physical surfaces, air, water that can kill viruses is uh, ultraviolet uh, radiation. And that's what we work together to try and develop and uh, test the um, efficacy of. A lot of people use UV, um, not a lot of people, rich aquarists use UV to uh, get rid of algae problems in their fish tanks. Yeah, clarifiers. Yeah. 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 Like if I had more money, I'd probably do that. I got an algae problem. Oh, yeah? Well, I may be able to hook you up, so Ooh. we'll talk after the Even pause. with mold. Mold, algae, bacteria, viruses, all those kind of things. You can contain them easily using uh, UVC LEDs. Mm. Yeah. So, 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 Richard, um, you know, you've had a very interesting life story. You've got a doctorate in microbiology. Would you sort of give us a uh, synopsis of what brings you to America and now to this podcast? Well, uh, I came to the United States in search of uh, uh, excellence, uh, basically because when I finished my master's degree from Kenya, my advisor, Professor Paulo Kemo, told me I cannot accept you anymore in my lab for, my, for a PhD. So he was like, hey, really throwing me out of his lab. And he told me, there's a catch. I can pay your rent for six months and pay for your cheery, only that you have to get out of the, the, the country and go either to Europe, or to USA, or to Japan. And I started reading for cheery. It was very interesting. And that's how I found myself in the USA. Prior to that, I was... Uh, uh, a research assistant with Artwatch Institute. I became a team leader at Artwatch Institute, which is based in Oxford, UK. But I was working from the Kenyan office. And uh, uh, for my master's, I worked on tuberculosis, which is a very bad uh, uh, 
species that can cause uh, a lot of just complications. It can become extra pulmonary in the sense that uh, it can go beyond your lungs into your bone marrow and those kind of stuff. This is a species of bacteria? Yeah, species yeah, of bacteria. That can get into my, my yeah. bone marrow? Yeah, yeah it can get into your bone marrow, it can get into literally every type of organ you have in your body, even your eyes. No, if I can kill that thing. <laughs> Whatever it takes to kill that thing, and, kill and, that and, thing, and, please. And, and, and well, we, the bacteria causing Lyme is very similar. Yeah, it can yeah, burrow yeah. into It, it can tissue. even be worse. It, it can be XDR tuberculosis, which can actually go beyond that to a point that it's, an, it's not only going to every virtually, every organ that you have in your body, but there's no cure for it. And we have very few cases uh, that arise normally, one case in Kenya, a lot of cases in Botswana, and a couple of them in South Africa. So, yeah, so working on a level three lab in Kenya was very interesting, after which I was like, hey, you need to get out of the country. I came to USA through Oregon. Uh, I worked in Oregon for one year. Uh, I was thrown out of <laughs> Oregon. But no, and no fault of your Alabama. own. Yeah, no fault of my own. Like, uh, I was working on stuff to do with uh, how bacteria move in the environment and uh, if you were to drop uh by a weapon at portland airport portland international airport uh after how many minutes will it arrive in the city center through pioneer square and move up to uh, oregon health sciences university and portland state university and move all the way out to piverton where people stay and so i was mapping that Oh, and, uh, <laughs> now I see where it's going. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I was not only mapping that, I was also trying to create a, a, a strain, a, a, some sort of bacteria, which can mutate to certain lengths beyond which there's no treatment. And the, the beyond which was 256 times. So I have the esteemed pleasure of working with Richard over the last, what, year and a half? Uh, a year and three months. Yeah, a year and three months. Yeah. Um, and... I was just totally blown away by so many stories that Richard was telling me um, in the lab when we were, you know, discussing politics and, you know, our own um, life stories and everything else. And there was a whole bunch of bio research that the United States was engaged in on like a, you know, a international effort that I was completely unaware of. So it turns out that Kenya is an American ally for a whole bunch of reasons. We have a uh, Air Force base that operates a, the you know, global war on terror. Oh, that's um, rare. You know, <laughs> out of Kenya. Walter Reed. Yeah. Yep. yeah. Walter Reed. Yeah. Um, and that there's this also uh, extreme knowledge and research focused in Kenya on bioterrorism and bioweapons and contagious diseases that could be existential threats for the species. Huh. And so uh, Richard was telling me when we were discussing American imperialism and the downfalls uh, or the downsides of it, that occasionally there's a silver lining. And Richard was talking about how um, there was a political turmoil in his country. And there was a period where you essentially had to go into hiding. Yeah. Um, for, for one week, my landlord had to give me food because he was from another tribe, which was friendly to the environment, to the government, not the environment, to the government. And basically, I had to be holed up in my apartment. People died. We lost a lot of people. But Condrisa Rice was sent to Kenya to give our government just one information, that you have to get peace right now and create a government that is all-inclusive before the United States comes in and create its own government for you. 
And that was special in the sense that we do have key American installations in Kenya, the military monitoring systems for Yemen, uh, Saudi Arabia, and Somalia are done from Kenya. And bioterrorism research in Kenya at uh, the CDC Kenya, where you where I used to work at. So that was helpful. Uh, we would have gone to Rwanda way if it were not for how special Kenyan is. Uh, when you think about it, Rwanda lost millions of people in just a few weeks just because they had nothing. When you have something, then people can protect you and look at you and say, hey, we don't want you to be hurt because we have a stake in your existence and you know we gain something. And so that's what happened. And one of the best uh, uh, research that is going on in Kenya is uh, uh, Ebola, para-influenza co-evolutional research, whereby, uh, as we know, if you got uh, a para-influenza virus, para-influenza virus in like, uh, let's say, uh, RPI, no, just, just as an example, nothing serious. Uh, it will spread very quickly in, in, in six hours, everybody will have it. Right? So para-influenza is an That's incredibly, um, w- would you call it virulent? In very sense? contagious, yeah, not very virulent. Con- yeah. yeah, so um, contagious uh, over air. So just by being in proximity to one contaminated person, you become not only contaminated yourself, but also a it, vector for yeah, further contamination. You pass it off as well. Very, very quickly, nobody dies. A little bit of mucus here and there. Uh, you release that and you'll be fine. But then... When you look at the genomic content of parenfluenza, it's just a few kilopieces in size, and then you move it across and mix it with Ebola. Then, you know, Ebola is funny because it kills very, very quickly, and uh, it doesn't move far. Sounds funny. So, <laughs> if the, the, Oh, Ebola! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that's how smart Ebola is. It kills very, very quickly. It doesn't give you a chance to move. So it ends up incinerating a region, uh, uh, and uh, that's it. So people can later on come to occupy that region because the people used to stay there are gone. But with parenfluenza is that it moves out very, very quickly to other areas. So if there is a situation where you can co-evolve the two, you're going to have a strain which can not only move very, very quickly, but also can kill very, very badly. And, and so that's what you have. So you were involved in the research to try and make this superbug? Uh, a little bit, but very tight supervision. What the because fuck? That, that's, a, that's, that's an American thing. Actually, it's not really bad to be involved in this kind of studies. It's, it's not terrible because at the end of the day, Russia is doing it. All these countries are doing China's it. China's probably doing uh, it. It's, 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 it's the right thing to do in terms of trying to see how much we can push uh, nature and what we can do beyond uh, the existing technologies to prevent those kind of occurrences from happening. So bioterrorism research is done for good reasons. How far can we go as human beings and how can we stop it? So America is very good on how can we stop it, but you cannot really learn how you will stop it before you create that which can cause that much harm. Yeah. I guess I'm, I'm, I'm suspicious of this work because I don't trust the American, the U.S. government with bioweapons because I think so we did we did a whole episode on Lyme disease which was a very conspiratorial it's a very conspiratorial topic the the possibility of America like the US government developing Lyme and you know we we went into that episode sort of operating in what do, how do I want to put this bad faith um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah we, we we went into it giving 
um, the benefit of the doubt to the conspirators, yeah. Yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Like you did, yeah. you did a deep dive and read the entire book, which was the most and watched uh, three documentaries. Yeah, yeah. watched the three documentaries on the the most um, uh, uh, controversial of the uh, reporters on this. Yeah. Yes, absolutely, um, and, and definitely go back and listen to it if you haven't. But the main takeaway is that out on Plum Island, it's possible that the American government made Lyme disease as a bioweapon because it is hard to detect and just slows down a populace. So you won't even know that it's been sent out until like you, uh, your whole nation is like lethargic and always allergic to things now. And yeah. it's slow. And like the, the, some of the specula speculation is that it was developed in concert with this, with the Soviet union, working with scientists who were at the time working with the USSR, that it was tested in like the Caribbean and in Latin America, um, and pr- likely resulted in several deaths and that it escaped from Plum Island and that now, you know, there are like a sizable percent of the U.S. population has experiences with Lyme disease. And so I guess like the, my, my point being that I definitely get the perspective that we need to be doing this research for no other reason than to understand the limits of particularly to understand how these natural mutations might occur and how we can, but I guess I'm just so suspicious of the United States government and it's in its role as like a bad actor and like wielding the power of these, like weaponizing these things and using them against whoever we deem an enemy. I mean, I would say that the water, mostly like if you look at their pages online, um, most of the research they do is is for the good of mankind. Uh, you can you can take that. yeah you can take that the way you want but I don't foresee a situation whereby the United States because they are competitors with Russia I don't foresee a situation whereby they can work together to create this kind of uh, 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 by weapons because and, they are competitors and, and use them yeah actually the reason why USA is doing this kind of studies is to simulate scenarios which uh, Russia can use against the USA and so that's where it becomes a good thing. Where it becomes a bad thing is by uh, human errors, for instance, where those kind of uh, vectors can escape mm-hmm. research laboratories and go out which, of the facility, and then that becomes chaotic. Yeah, uh, which is quite common, despite the incredible levels of like physical security that's uh, you know done to maintain that. Yeah, you know, it can happen. Mistakes can happen. Um, but I mean, there's uh, documentary proof that the United States has purposefully released bioweapons that it's developed uh, in other countries like the like there have been declassified documents that I, I prove that it that, I don't that we've know done about, that i don't know about that uh, the only really true thing that i've seen an american president apologize for in terms of uh, biological research is bill clinton apologizing to the people in alabama uh the Tuskegee experiments where people were deliberately being uh, uh, given was it civilis or gonorrhea civilis. i think it was civilis that's the only true case of where an American government has gone out deliberately to do human studies on its own citizens. And I think the underlining factor was that these guys were of a lower class and, you know, if they pass it over to their own wives and kids, whatever, they don't care because they are not that worthy, you know. Yeah, that's the moral question yeah. uh, about the whole kind of, uh, of, of research because we are controlled by bioethics and... Uh, there is always uh, a, a chance for us to look at what you are doing and why you are doing it. And uh, I think that, uh, for instance, the kind of studies that happen through Waterloo are meant for good. And uh, I don't foresee the United States as a country trying to harm another country just for the sake of harming them 
I, I, that does not mean they're not using the birds, you know. Mm. Well, you had mentioned to me a, another study where they were mm. um, doing an Ebola um, uh, vaccination or like a control uh, mechanism where they were actually purposefully this wasn't the United States. This was like another country somewhere uh, in Africa that had purposefully um, injected people with Ebola. Was that the case? Uh, that that was a very mild attenuated study whereby you are trying to take Ebola virus to create a vaccine, meaning you have to attenuate it. And to attenuate a virus is to work on it in a way that can make it weak, non-violent, to be able to create a vaccine out of it. Mm, I see. So that's sort uh, of... Uh, it, it kind of works in mm -hmm. most of the cases because that's how vaccinations are created. Mm, but sometimes we don't understand a virus to a certain extent. So it comes back to to, to virus. And uh, that was the case whereby you are trying to attenuate Ebola only that you have not reached the light levels. Like you have not gone further towards weakening it such that if you inject it to a human being, the immune system can respond towards this virus and the virus is not going to be virulent anyway, so you're creating an immunological response to protect these individuals. And so, and in this circumstance, it's an issue of us trying to move quickly to help citizens, such that they don't get sick from this virus, and that to realize that, oh, we made a mistake. We should have done this a hundred more times and not just 50 times. Uh, so that was your, yeah. your complaint with yeah. the uh, bioethics of that study was simply that it was rushed. And it that, is rushed. Yeah. yeah. And because with vaccinations, we don't have that kind of control that, oh, you need to take 10 years to make it FDA approved. Yeah. Uh, you can actually create a vaccine in a matter of weeks. For instance, in the coronavirus case that we're experiencing right now, we don't have months to create a vaccine. I would think right now we are about to give out a vaccination to the people who are sick from, mm. to the populations that are endangered by coronavirus. Mm. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. There's been some interesting stories coming out of that region where they like built a hospital and like six days. Yeah. Or something. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it was like a month or something, but they built like an enormous hospital, like a yeah. 10,000 bed hospital in a couple of, couple of weeks. And, uh, uh, and part of that is really just to treat the people that, that, that get it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, like while a lot of people have died and have been infected, their success rate of like keeping people alive and getting over it has been not bad. I, I think like I think it was something like three thousand people have like had it been treated mm. and uh, recovered. But yeah, I would imagine that the biggest problem with a, a vaccination, like you were talking about, is that you need to weaken it to the point that you don't become symptomatic, <laughs> but then your body has created the, the antibodies to protect you from it. And so the whole work of creating a vaccine, which is time sensitive or not time sensitive, but time consuming mm -hmm. is uh, getting that, that balance just right yeah. where it's strong enough that your body starts creating antibodies to it. And now you're immune to it versus like making it so weak that it doesn't do anything. And the vaccine just doesn't work. Right. Yeah, 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 yeah. And so, and if you if you do it too fast, maybe you overcorrect, and you just and you're just injecting people with Ebola, and you yeah. get sick, right, yeah. or or whatever it is that you're trying to make a vaccine for. Yes. Yeah. So it, it's a it's a it's a small balance, and uh, there's a whole field of bioethics that has to look into these things, and uh, there is a lot of declaration. Actually, before you go out into the, into these populations, it's very very hard to get approvals. 
we however have seen cases where United States gets free and that's where I can support you now in terms of tr carrying out field trials in other countries without really helping the people on the ground understand mm. what's going on exactly. There was a case, which is this a journal actually published in Plus One magazine, you know, Plus One channel, where the kids in Kisumu, in Western Kenya, were deliberately inoculated with uh, Plasmodium uh, malariae or falciplum, and they became sick of malaria. Mm. And they were trying to, to find the efficacy of a malaria vaccine in Kisumu, a place called Nyalenda. And... Uh, the control for that was actually not a drug that can be able to cure malaria. It's an anthrax vaccine. So that was uh, ridiculous. And that's, that has been discussed very extensively because we lost a lot of kids in that area. Uh, and the, I guess those who were behind it have had to pay for it. But once again, it was the selection of the control group was, control group. was people who you know, on the global socioeconomic uh, condition low. are as low as, as they could find, yes. essentially. Yeah. There's even a, it surprises me. Actually, I did a presentation on that in uh, Portland State University in Oregon when I was uh, talking about bioethics, where I made a presentation like, hey, look, you're among the, po the most protected citizens in, of any country in the world, but look what your country can do in other countries in terms of going to another country Picking for the kids who are well on this side, another for the kids who are also well on this side, deliberately injecting these for the kids with malaria, and the other for the kids on this side with malaria, and then this group A, they give them a vaccine which they are trying to develop that can be able to, to prevent malaria, and uh, group B being injected with the anthrax vaccine, which we know cannot work against malaria, of yeah, course. It's a, isn't it's, anthrax like a fungi or like, something? Pardon? It's like anthrax spores, right? Uh, it's, it's a bacillus. Yeah. Uh, but, oh, uh, sorry. It's a bacillus. So it's a bacteria, yeah. Uh, but it's very, very bad, actually, and very hard to cure. So we lost a lot of kids on either side because the malaria vaccine itself had no efficacy, really. It was not working. And the anthrax vaccine really is not going to work anyway. So we lost a lot of kids before we had to move towards, hey, you have to unblind the study. Let's know what's going on. Because it was double-blinded. You, you can be a scientist on the ground doing something, but you have no idea what you're doing because mm. it's double-blinded. Yeah, so, so for people who aren't familiar with scientific studies, you can have a blind study where... The people that are the subjects don't know if they are getting the experimental drug or vaccine or whatever. Or sugar yeah. pill. Or whether they're getting a control, which is a sugar pill or just like something that w won't actually do anything. But Placebo. It's, yeah, but it's meant to make sure that, you know, you're just like, oh, yeah, I feel better because I took a, a pill. And yeah. like, you know, the placebo effect is strong. But a double blind study is when the person administering the, the drug or the vaccine doesn't know who they're giving it to either. Yeah. Right. So it's, it's the double is the pe people giving it to you and the people receiving it are, uh, are blind to whether, to what they're giving. So and the purpose of that being that, you know, a, a blind study tries to control for perceptions of the people who are being experimented on a double blind study tries to then also account for whatever bias researchers or scientists conducting the study might have. Interesting. Yes. yes. Interesting. It, it, it's really, it, it's very, it's very bizarre because sometimes you see a mom coming with uh, a kid to the hospital and saying, oh, I have, just like you said yesterday, I should be bringing back my kid today, so I'm here today. Uh, can you, she's not getting better, she's getting worse, can you please help? And you try to say like, 
uh, I'm trying to help your kid, ma'am. I'm going to give one injection, but I'm going to recommend that you go to a hospital where you can pay money. And, and, it, and somebody looks at you like, why should I go to another hospital and pay money when you guys are giving me medicine for free? You, you, you are pound, you're pound as a scientist by certain non-disclosure. So you are trying to give the least minimum amount of information to the person like, mm-hmm, hey, mm-hmm. I'm going to do it right now. But you really need to take this kid to a hospital where you can pay money after this visit. Oof. Then they will not do that because, you know, why would I do that? Because I don't have the money. I don't have the food. I need to come here tomorrow if the kid is not feeling better. So that's how you end up losing kids. Because you cannot say, hey, what I'm going to give your kid is not going to work. You are going to have to take the kid to a hospital where you have to pay the money for your kid to be well. Uh, guess what? You should not trust to get free medication from yes. us. And then that also And seems, you can't say that. Well, it seems like it invalidates the purpose of the study altogether, right? Because now yeah. this, it, it lets assume that the mother can afford to take the child to a hospital where they can pay for treatment. Now that treatment is interfering with the experimental treatment. That seems like it would taint whatever data you could actually get out of it that would be useful, right? Like, yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it, I, I mean, it's... Scientists who do uh, clinical studies are also human beings. They feel for those who are going to lose their loved ones. And uh, sometimes you you may even want to say, that, hey, I'm giving your kid a placebo. Just, just go and treat your kid. Yeah. But you can't mm-hmm. say that. Uh, also, the other thing being that, especially in Africa, most of these clinical trials come with a lot of goodies. Like there's money involved, there's food involved. There's a lot of good things that come out of this. So it's very hard for uh, parents to abandon being part of the study because they know what they are getting out of the study. Like you are getting like $20 out of this. $20 is a lot of money just for just for the record. If I were to give us an example, if I send to Kenya $100 to a friend, that's enough to pay rent for the month in a single room. Yeah. Mm. So $20 is a lot of money. Yeah. Just to put it in context. And that's the whole reason why, for instance, in Zambia, you saw the Southern African country called Zambia, mm-hmm. where a lot of women who had no HIV had to volunteer in HIV AIDS studies. Uh, there is this gel that you have to put into yourself first before you have sex. And um, a lot of moms volunteered for that. Some of them never told their husbands that they were going to take part in these studies. And they became HIV positive from being HIV negative. Uh, how, oh do you, how do you explain that? It, it's, it's right there in the news, and it's not a big deal. We don't see it on CNN. We don't, we don't see it in Fox News, but it is there, and you see it on the, on the newspapers. Yeah. So wh- one bit of context that I'm thinking of with um, experimental design is, uh, you know, it's not just in bioethics, but in all academia from the United States, but I think also Europe, is the side effect of an ostensibly good thing, like more people coming into higher education and uh, wanting to do that research, but also educational institutions becoming very financialized and trying to get as many students out as possible, is that graduate students, and here's something where like the plight of graduate students actually matters to uh, the normal to a normal person, is that we have to create dissertations that are defensible uh, a lot quicker and with a lot fewer resources. And what that usually means is that grad students of all stripes from every field start going to the global south to do their research in very ethically dubious ways. 
Hmm. It has gotten to the point that where um, there's there's a whole volume that I've read on uh, political science, like quantitative political science majors, uh, like uh, early PhDs, that have started to do a lot of research in like Brazil and South America because uh, one, their sub their laws around research subjects are a lot more, let's say, flexible, and and also and it's also like you're you're saying, Richard, cheaper to um, say test uh bribery on public officials which is mm. which is a very big issue for political scientists is to see like you know like what are the the barriers to preventing corruption but also like what is the tipping point where uh a public official or like a police officer or you know like some sort of bureaucrat will uh start working in a corrupt manner and the only way to test that is to bri- is to actually do the corruption like bribe them in these gotta increments do crimes. Yeah, gotta, gotta do, do crimes some crimes know, for science crimes. are you telling me Wine Guido is just a phd student <laughs> yeah, for real. Yeah, yeah yeah but i mean like this shit really does start it does happen where in the effort to create more phd's phd students who like are either going to graduate or be in debt or you know whatever like are in this position where you know it's not necessarily excusable because you know for you know to hurt other people to get out of debt but i mean like there's still like this structural problem where like tons and tons of people are going to the you know like the least among us you know like the people that are most vulnerable to complete their research I'll, and that can be really dangerous yeah i'll tag on to that a little bit it's a similar it's it stems from that same problem but manifests very differently which is like as a result of uh, so the institutions have in, in, IRBs, institutional review boards that have to ensure their their goal. Ultimately, they're ostensibly they're designed to protect participants in experiments. Practically, they're designed to keep a university from getting sued. Yeah. Mm. Um, and as a result of a lot of, I would say, what I would say is more hard sciences. You can't see my air quotes, but I'm using them that are running experiments with human subjects that actually have the potential to cause physical harm mm-hmm. to subjects, right? You know, damage to their bodies. And then also psychological experiments with the potential to do harm to people's minds and psyches and emotional uh, health. Now you ha- also have other people doing what are, are sort of understood to be experiments, but are ultimately more kind of soft science, humanistic and sociological research being held to these incredibly high standards of what kind of interaction they can have with human subjects. And ultimately what that has a tendency to do for people working in the soft sciences at research institutions is either certain research simply can't be done because we, you can't prove that uh, human subjects won't be harmed in a specific way, the way that you can, if you're doing, if you're coming from like a biology background, you can't prove that something won't be harmful. And that either forecloses research, certain types of research being done, or it forces people into like, Art, like starting to do things as art so that they can just get around. And <laughs> that, that, that is for sure like that serious. Is something, yeah. I yeah. ran into that in my own dissertation. I was talking yeah. to her. Art's a hell of a loophole. I, yeah. I was talking to this woman, Angela Washka, who was doing... Um, oh, yeah. She was Shout working, out to Angela. Yeah, she's, I know her. her research is fantastic and really fascinating. And she created this game called The Game, which was yeah. based on pickup artistry. Yeah, and Varouche. somebody put me... I was having massive problems getting through IRB approval because I was at an engineering school. Mm-hmm. And they view any interaction with human like they're they're working with people who are doing like stints for people going undergoing chemotherapy that's where they come from like a 
Well, and so basically I couldn't get my research approved because they were like, we don't understand what you're talking about. We don't oh. understand what, what online research is. So I talked to Angela Washko and I'm like, how did you get it? And she's like, I'm an artist. I don't need IRB approval. She's like, I can, I can talk to whoever I want and do whatever kind of yeah. um, research I want. And Art doesn't take ask it. permission. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, so anyway, that's, that's maybe a bit more tangential to the conversation than is worth well, it. But it is kind of interesting how the hard sciences and soft sciences interact in ways that, you know, foreclose certain opportunities. I completely agree. And I want to bring up two related anecdotes. One is that we were talking about bioethics and uh, bioethics is a big deal even, you know, here. Take, for example, a surgeon, right? So a surgeon has to go from never done surgery, done surgery maybe on an animal or a cadaver, to done doing surgery on a living human being for the first time. Mm -hmm. Every single surgeon has to not only do their very first cut, but their very first cut at any given surgery for the very first time. It mm -hmm. can't, you know, be done otherwise. And so who gets cut on first? Who do you give the noob to? You know, like, do you have the senator's son or the president of the United States getting the random 28-year-old just out of med school first cut on uh, doing a specific surgery? No, you don't. You get the transient person. You get the person who's very elderly uh, and, you know, on public assistance, et cetera, et cetera. And we have classism built into essentially our social valuation of yeah. uh, human beings. And the alternative, I guess, is complete egalitarianism. And then the second anecdote I wanted to bring up is the one reason why we might want to make social and soft sciences um, have to go through similar levels of rigor is that I'm sure you guys know of a man named Ted Gazzini. I, I'm, f I'm familiar with his work. Yeah. yeah so, He's a nice old man that lived in Montana. Yeah, he was yeah. accused of being affiliated with the RPI STS department. Yeah. Little known fact. Yep. Yeah. I, yeah. Well, I'm sure there, he's got some fans there. <laughs> but like, uh, well, a, a lot of the return addresses to the, uh, for the uh, mail bombs were to RPI. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, which is why they thought it was. It was us. So Ted Kaczynski is a Unabomber. He was this very anti-technology, uh, anti-science, um, you know, uh, radical that was out in the woods uh, mailing bombs, which, by the way, is a really, really, like, cowardly way to kill anybody is mail them a fucking bomb. But anyway. Um, Bad tactics. Okay, so, <laughs> he had some. He had some good ideas. Well, he, he, had, he had a lot of the arguments that you see in the um, uh, the end civilization movements right. or the, yeah. the, the deep Derek green. Jansen yeah, types, yeah, the deep yeah. green uh, resistance, uh, you know, green anarchism, etc. But one of the things that you might not know about Ted Kaczynski is that Ted Kaczynski was a uh, subject in a psychological experiment uh, done by, I believe, a philosophy department that was essentially trying to figure out how much stress someone would need before they cracked. And the stress that they tried to give him was to put him in front of an organization that I think he couldn't even actually see the people and berate him about his most fundamentally held beliefs. So here's what here's what the, the form that that experiment took place. He was basically put in a very caring, supportive environment in which he was encouraged to share. He had a lot of kind of out there beliefs at the time. Yeah. He was a math genius. And he had a really heightened ego. Mm -hmm. He thought a lot about his ideas. Oh, yeah. He thought he was very intelligent. He thought he was going to change the world with these ideas. And he was encouraged to speak very openly about them to these supposed experts. And 
then upon a certain, I don't remember exactly the amount of time, but he spent a lot of time with these people who were like, wow, you know, you're so brilliant. I can't, you yeah. know, your ideas are so incredible. Developing and rapport it, and Developing all that. rapport. And then they essentially, it, then they turned it on him and they started braiding him, telling him what, how idiotic his ideas were. Like, I can't believe we tricked you into sharing all of these stupid, facile ideas. You should um, probably be locked up for your belief. Yeah. <laughs> So, you know, like... So yeah, IRB is important, folks. Like, would you need <laughs> yeah, it? You really need to have an institutional review. Uh, not, not only yeah. that, but we also need elements that have to do with uh, uh, policy as well as regulation. Uh, because where most countries fail at, it's not just because uh, they don't have in, uh, these committees that are looking over those kind of uh, stuff, those kind of applications, but uh, they do not have the right regulations existing in, uh, in place. And it's very easy for other governments that are so big and are enabled to come in and just say, hey, we can't do this experiment in Belgium. How about we do it in Kenya? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. And also, um, you know, the drive uh, for all these people to publish the results and get funding and whatever on various like timetables, because, you know, you got institutions with quarterly, you know, budgets, et cetera, sometimes gets organizations and institutions to rush, like your experience uh, with Oregon State. Mm -hmm. When I got a grant to work in Ghana, it was from the National Science Foundation, and it has a time limit on it. And not only does the National Science Foundation, like, want to see a return on investment very quickly, which is really, like, how they put it. It's a very, you know, like, alarm sounds here. A neoliberal, you know, like, way to, to think about research. But um, but it uh, uh, but it's true that, like, you know, like, if they're going to give you money, like, they want to see uh, results in, in a very strict timetable. And uh, that was actually... Um, uh, my research happened when the Ebola outbreak was taking place in West Africa. And Ghana had zero cases of Ebola, mm-hmm. but they bordered several countries, Cote d'Ivoire, uh, um, Cameroon. Yeah, where they did have a lot of confirmed cases. Uh, and so they were just like, weren't letting anyone go to any any country that even bordered a country that ha- that was getting Ebola. And the way that scholarship money works is that they give it to the institution that you're a part of, not you specifically. It isn't like a grant money like shows up in your bank account. It's it's held in trust by the institution you work through. And so like, but that also means they can control how the money is used and refuse to give you money. And so they were like, we're not letting you buy plane tickets to Ghana. And so I couldn't do any of my research work there. And, and so uh, I or I couldn't go there, but I could give them money, which is what I ended up doing. But um, Which also ended up fucking over a lot of the people you were working yeah, with. Yeah, no, it, 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 it ruined a bunch of stuff. But I ended up just giving the money away to my interlocutors, you know, the people that I was working with in Ghana, because uh, not only did the N- the NSF like want to see you know like what are you doing with this money like, National next, Science Foundation yeah mm-hmm. yeah next year you know but also I had to graduate like I I they were going to kick me out if I didn't finish my dissertation so like I need some data you know so like, I'll just like give my give that money away instead of like waiting for the Ebola outbreak to to quiet down or something like mm-hmm. that so you know like these are all the like the the really nuts and bolts sort of like. Sorry, listener, maybe boring. I don't know. <laughs> you know like, it it makes a lot of sense. It's not boring because yeah, really, yeah, when you talk about Ghana, Ghana is on this side and uh, Ebola is attacking mostly the DRC Congo and yeah. Rwanda and Prundi and mostly Uganda on this side. So I don't see why. Maybe they're just being cautious, but really Ebola was very far from 
Well, yeah. I think it's also that American tendency to view Africa as a monolith, and yeah. so anything dangerous that happens in Africa, even is... when we have fifty-three countries, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And the majority of like populated and, landmass. And, 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 yeah. and, and just for the sake of it, Africa, in perspective, in perspective, I mean, is that America would just fit into the Sahara Desert. Mm. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah. It's just it's, our desert in Africa is equivalent of the United States. Yeah. Mm. And you need India in. You need China in. And you need uh, the whole of West, Eastern Europe in. And England is a very tiny island, of course. That can be can be uh, less than enough in Madagascar. Just a little bit of Madagascar is equal to England. Yeah. And so we can swallow like five to six United States and still have a lot of space for Eastern Europe to fit in. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. And, and also it the, is United- the largest continent, isn't it? It is. Yeah. 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 But when you see the map of the world, you, Africa and the America is just the same size. Yeah. I'm just saying. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. The Mercator yeah. projection about- really fucks up uh, the size of Africa. Yeah. We've talked about maps that skew yeah. Um, yeah. parts of the world. Check out our Flat Earth episode. Yeah. 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 <laughs> do that. yeah. We get into all the projections. Dimaxian yeah. map forever. No, there's a. Um, there's also the fact that like the United States had more confirmed cases of Ebola than Ghana did. Yeah. Like well, most that's because like did. two is more than zero. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah. It's like, like yeah, it's not like a lot, but you know, like, yeah, they're they're like they do have like a system in place yeah. to deal with that. Yeah, like, that it was, is real. Yeah, there was one yeah. in Texas, one in uh, um, Emory University, yeah, in, and one in Nebraska, Lincoln. So, so three cases. So, yeah, I want to just get into the discussion about imperialism, specifically American imperialism, because I think it touches all of these facets. And one of the things that, you know, I can bring up as an anecdote, and I don't know how truthful this is. This is just what I've heard through the grapevine. My, my mm-hmm. fiance works for a company called Regeneron, mm-hmm. and they make like um, biopharmaceuticals. So they have like a lot of biologists and, and they sort of target niche markets. Like they, they cure a specific type of glaucoma, like completely oh, cure glaucoma, it. Yeah. 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 And they yeah. have... That's, that's tropical. Yep. And they have a um, Ebola vaccine mm-hmm. that apparently they uh, shipped like some crazy amount of uh, vaccines, like in a big cargo container to some country. And I don't even know a country, but allegedly the people who uh, received the uh, vaccines basically rioted and burned it to the ground because they were just completely distrustful of the um, imperial yeah. inputs yeah. because, you know, they're just like, yeah. why would they have an interest in curing us of disease? <laughs> like they, you know, taken our resources, they overthrow our governments. They, yeah. you know, you look at what happened with uh, Libya and Gaddafi mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and, you know, that guy ended up on the end of a bayonet, you know, up his ass. Um, yeah. And Hillary Clinton laughed about it. And yeah. so like you have, I think, wide held uh, distrust of not just the American government, but also our organizations. I mean, I will see why it it it, it was a uh, very hard for the general, for instance, to deliver their vaccines to Africa. And I will imagine if they were taking those drugs, then it is to the Democratic Republic of Congo, mm. which is the epicenter of Ebola. Now, if you know the Democratic Republic of Congo, they have the best diamond, they have the best gold in the world, and those kind of stuff. They are they have the best minerals that you can imagine any country can have in the world. But then the Democratic Republic of Congo has never had peace, uh, mainly because of countries like the United States, countries like uh, uh, Belgium and Germany and other European yeah. entities. Now, from that point on, you find a, a situation whereby you don't trust, quote-unquote, the white people. Mm. Now, 
if you are going to create vaccines and try to help those people, then you have to be smart enough to invoke citizen science aspects to your work, where, mm. you are, where you are involving the locals, or you pick the best people from that locality. Or I'm very sure there are people in the United States who are from the Democratic Republic of Congo, and they have PhDs in immunology and vaccinology. And also the people can be hired by a regional, for instance, to be able to be taken back to Africa and say, hey, I'm from here. This is my people. This is my area. And I'm bringing you help for Ebola. And I'm one of you. Look at me. I'm one of you. And then you can speak even in Lingala. Because in the Democratic Republic of Congo, you either are able to speak Lingala or French. And now you go there with your English and you're trying to say, hey, I bring you help. I bring you Ebola vaccine. Mm you're going to get burned out. Mm, yeah. yeah. Because you lack citizen science approach. There, there's a, one of my favorite books and I, that I cite in almost all of my academic writing is uh, the edited volume. Uh, the editor's uh, her last name's Kathari, I think. And um, uh, it's, called, it's called a participa uh, participation colon the new tyranny question mark <laughs> and, uh, uh, and, the, and the book is really about you know like well yeah, if you're doing sort of participatory work or like any sort of work where like like citizen science like you're describing where you go to a site that is in desperate need of science or yeah. some sort of research and but you go in like the imperial sense right where you mm -hmm. show up and like i have all the answers you have all the problems yeah you run into a lot of really thorny problems, one of which being that even if you go with the sort of like West Wing enlightened sense of we're going to give you a bunch of stuff and not ask for anything in return, you still run into local hierarchies. Because if, you, if you're going into scare quotes Africa, right, you know, like you think that you, you're all of your ideas about hierarchy are really, really high up and like global. And you don't even think about the fact that, you know... Like they also live in a society. Yeah, they, they live in a society. And At the most complex of societies. Yeah, and there are, like, so many tribal affiliations, right? Mm -hmm. And, like, other sorts of uh, hierarchies that can be actually reintroduced or strengthened because now the stakes are so much higher because now there's, like, a, a bunch of aid on the table that people that are already in power can use to uh, sway people in different directions, right? Yeah. I mean, it's the same thing. Even when we look for pol, uh, we look at polio. Why are we saying we have been able to almost eliminate polio? Why do we still have cases of polio in Nigeria and some cases of polio in like Mexico? It's because we have not created a mechanism whereby we can use the locals for the common good of mankind. For instance, in northern Nigeria, which is mostly uh, Islamic, they don't trust the Western. Med, med, um, medical system and it's mainly because we have been we have not been very involving if we were to involve them in the whole process then we can have their own go back and tell them hey i've been part of the process i know what it takes this is all we need to take care of polio period but then we got there with these airplanes and stuff and this white dude is coming out and saying hey make a line i'm gonna kill you from polio it's not gonna work yeah yeah and, and another part of like the flattening of of Africa is like even in every individual country. Like my limited experience in Ghana is that you know the south of Ghana in the on the coast is is like evangelical Christian, 
And then by the time you get to the North, it's devout Muslim. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, like they don't like each other within the country, within which the is country. like, the, yeah. which is like the size of, you know, like Georgia or North Carolina or something. Like it's, a, it's a small country, but like yeah. it is, spans like a wide, diverse sort of society. And like, even they don't uh, like trust each other. Yeah. And so like, yeah, how would you imagine like America showing up and like, yeah, we, you know, like we bought and sold you for a couple hundred years, but now, now we're cool. Now we're cool. We're going to give you some of like, these vaccines <laughs> And it, you know, Ghana is like over 100 languages. That's over 100 ways of living. Yeah. Mm, yeah. yeah. Mm. Like, like, half, like half the country only speaks three, which is only in Ghana and yeah. like the Ashanti kingdom. And like you can't, there's like a whole second level of yeah. uh, governance that is this, this kingdom structure where like, people will like completely agree or the, the, you know, like the, they're swayed by essentially like this pope of a of a of a, a kingdom that like most americans have never even fucking heard of yeah yeah i mean i i don't know did you go to as far as kumasi or yeah you know, I, I, I spent most of my kumasi? time in kumasi kumasi yeah. yeah so kumasi is like the oldest the most ancient place where yeah. trade really first started from yep. before mankind discovered how to use uh, money to trade goods kumasi in accra ghana all the way to mali they knew how to do trade without using money, by using good for good. You can come with your sorghum and I will give you beans. But how do you know the equivalent of beans that will be the same as the amount of sorghum I'm about to give you? That was discovered in West Africa. And how did they know? They knew by weight and they knew by how valuable what you are holding is. It's, it's an incredibly complicated, it's very complicated credit and debt system in a yeah. lot of cases where you just like mark it down. You have like a... Like a, a ledger. Is it a bit like a gift economy, or well, is no, it you know no. more transactional than that? No, yeah, it, it's um like it's not it's not barter like the like the chapter one of your economics one hundred one textbook. It's like very much like like ledgers written down where you have to make these complicated um, equalizations. Where it's not it's not like a money economy where everything is um, pegged to one specific currency. You have these uh, ledgers of sorghum equals five hundred of these of yeah. these other things, <laughs> ah. and how yeah. many goats can be equated to yeah. how much of sorghum? Yeah, so you have like these, these massive equations that you have to. And that's uh, equivalent uh, like the stock market. Yeah, yeah, that yeah. you have to that figure out. That style of trade yeah. has predominated most of human history yeah. across most civilizations. Mm. It's never yeah. there. Mm. Even in South America, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, Roman the Republic. Um, I mean, before anything, that that is the style of trade that predates currency, and currency is really not like we tend to think of like the history of human exchange as either being barter or currency, but really mm. like those have not been the prevailing methods of of trade in most civilizations throughout most of human history. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Brittany, correct me wrong, but uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but um, barter, as it's described again in like those econo chapter one of economics textbooks, really just not doesn't exist. Nobody has ever traded sheep for yeah. like corn. That's yeah. never really existed almost anywhere. Typically, it is more of a much more fluid, dynamic mode of trade where like the value of one good compared to another is is shifting like all the time, the same way that it yeah. does in like commodities markets in the West. And, you know, like social relationships with somebody, you may like value one neighbor's you know cattle more highly than another because they happen to be like your aunt's third cousin and or they're better at it or they're better at yeah. it their their cattle are better or like you share some kind of marital tie like all of these things are are, are we tend to like e econ 101 makes you think that there have been times and places where you know 
things, goods had like fixed exchange values. And yeah. that, that is not, it's kind of a myth that yeah. it's used yeah. to oversimplify very complex social relationships. And there's a trust as well, because even mm -hmm. trading in Africa has to come with trust. And trust has a value. Uh, for instance, I don't know if you experienced this in Ghana. You can go to a shop to buy milk. And I will sell the milk to you at a much more expensive price than I would sell. <laughs> yes, I, you know, I spent so much more money. <laughs> that's, that's because I'm selling yeah. trust to you. I don't yeah. trust you, so you pay more for that lack of trust. Yeah. yeah. Like, I can go to a shop to buy milk, and the person selling stuff to me would be like, well, you can buy this, you can buy that, but you can't buy milk because I think so-and-so uh, is supposed to come for milk and does not come for milk. I don't want him to miss milk. Mm, right. I know him more and I trust him more, so I'm not going to sell milk to you. Mm. And we, we should trust also say that like, like the invention, the technology of a single fixed price, in the United States at least, is like a hundred or so years old. Like it is not, it's, it's more Less of a... even. Yeah, it's like, it, that is a, a new phenomenon more than, than anything else. Like it, it, it's very and even, it's widespread still... now. But which and makes it seem like it's been around forever. But it's, it's fluid fine. even now. I mean, yeah. anybody who's ever been a loyal bodega customer knows yeah. oh, that yeah. like, you know, I mean, I used to when I was in college and I bought 90 percent of my goods and services from the Shell station and was on a first name basis with everybody who worked there. Like yeah. I paid less for cigarettes. I yeah. paid less for tall boys. Yeah. I could go in with like a handful of dimes and say, whatever I can't cover, right? Can I get like a honey bun and a tall boy and a pack of Marb Lights? And like, I'll give you 60 cents today. And then next week you get paid. I'll come back in and pay the difference. And sometimes he would wipe my tab clean. Like anybody who, th these economic systems still function, especially in working class and poor neighborhoods in the United States. Obviously, sense. you can't go into like a price chopper and expect that kind of treatment. But, you know, if you're going to like the the seven star on third and, you know, on third and King Street, like that's going to be um, a little bit easier to get. Yeah, with that. we have a lot of that. Yeah, it's, it's really it makes a lot of sense uh, in, in terms of if you were to go to Kenya, for instance, and go to a place like Samburu, where I worked for three years, creating rubber for my first one week was very hard. Because nothing can be sold to me because I'm not a local. I can't speak the local language. We have like 53 languages in Kenya. And holy shit. Trust is money. <laughs> trust is money. Uh, trust is a commodity. Yeah. I can go and I'm like, that's milk. I want milk. And it's told, no, we can't sell milk to you. And they're like, what? Is this not a business? And no, I have friends who need milk. They'll get this milk. You can't get this milk. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there, there's also customs that you were telling me about um, where if you see like a uh, an old person like carrying something, yeah. if you're younger than them, you're you need expected to, go. You need to, go. to just actually, grab what I, they have that's and the carry one, it for that's them. That's the one thing actually that I miss, that there's hierarchy. I mean, I, I know hierarchy in the overall sense of hierarchy is not a very good thing, but there's an, a way in which I respect and like hierarchy. Social hierarchy. Social hierarchy. For instance, if you see an old person calling like 15 pounds of sorghum, you need to go across the street and say, hey, mom, can I help you? Where are you going to? And then they will hand over the sorghum to you and say, oh, I'm going like two miles away from here. I'm going to this place. And then you walk all the way. And you are so free in most countries of Africa where I think, like when you went there, you somebody can meet you like right now. They've never seen you like forever. They don't know you. And they can talk with you for like hours. Those people have jobs, yeah. but those people have the power to call their boss and say, hey, boss, 
I just met a guest here. I don't know where he's coming from. I think it's from America. He told me he's from America. I'm going to spend like two hours from him. Can I come to work later? And the voice goes, oh, yeah, yes. See you later. Here you will be fired. In the yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You'll be fired. Unless but, you're a member of the bourgeoisie and can afford to like right. just take days off work. Which, yeah, you know, right. is yeah, that, that's sort of lunches. human connection. Yeah, that, 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 yeah, that's another, another level. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> but exactly. In, in Kenya, you can call your boss and say, hey, I met this guest from the United States. She doesn't know where the Hilton is or Fairview Hotel is. And I'm going to take her to Fairview Hotel, make sure she's safe. And blah blah blah, and then I'll come back to work. And you're supposed to say, We always encourage people to be nice to each other. And in terms of social hierarchy, is that if my father is talking, I shut up. Mm. It doesn't it doesn't matter if your dad is talking or anybody older than you is talking, you shut up. Actually, when I grew up and I was in elementary school, if somebody who is elderly is coming from in front of me, from the other side, I have to stand. You don't move. Somebody's coming from in front of you, you stop. And you look down because it's really seen as offensive to stare. for you to look at your elder's eyes. Yeah. You need to look down until they talk to you and say, hey, Richard, look at me. Then you look at them and say, how are you doing today? And you say, okay, I'm doing good. Where are you going? To school. Then they'll tell you, I bless you. Go to school. Work hard. Get that white man's knowledge. And one day you'll help our village. That's how we grew up. God, our, our older generations are so fucking poisoned and toxic. Can you imagine if we had to constantly show deference to them? We would just like live in a in a uh anarcho capitalist hellscape if the boomers were like <laughs> had to be treated with that level of reverence. Imagine um, if people had to treat the president with that type of reverence. Like I mean, you know, did you guys hear the uh the the um uh, victory speech he gave after he was um acquitted uh by the Senate after he was impeached by the House? He was talking about Steve Scalise's shooting for like six minutes. He's like, he set a record for blood loss. <laughs> I, I can't even do the, do the bit, but uh, I highly uh, encourage uh, everybody to check out the Trillabillies. Um, they put their latest episode. Um, uh, Terrence does a reading of the the entire five minute um, <laughs> diatribe about Steve's Gleef shooting. And Jesus it, Christ. I think I pulled some muscles in my ribs um, laughing <laughs> too hard. It, 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 your worth. Uh, I mean, for a long time, you know, going to school in many countries in Africa was very hard because when uh, you want to go to school uh, and then people are like, oh, you just want to abandon your way of living and you want to buy into whitehood, you know, those kind of stuff. But then again, over time, people start to realize that actually it's good to go to school. And when you go to school, uh, there is uh, an element of progress that comes real quick and you are able to transform your community or society real quickly. For instance, instead of them having a well where water is coming out of the ground and they are coming to pick it, just like that, uh, you can be able to peel like concrete wall and things like that and put the piping for, for people to get well filtered water for their uh, household use. And so they come to realize that indeed uh, it's good to go to this kind of uh, Western schools and it does make sense and it can change lives, although it's very hard. And uh, people who go to Western schools are able to advance their way up the social hierarchy uh, even even when we know we respect people based on their age, you can easily be an elder while you are not necessarily that old because of what you have, your financial uh, muscle. 
and, and what, how you give it back to the and community. How, and how you give it back, and how you give back to community. Because the, uh, how you give back to community and what you are doing to your community is really important in the sense that it even determines how you're going to be parted in case you died. Mm. Uh, if you are a very mean person, you are not good to the community and nobody liked you in the community, nobody's going to touch your casket when you're dead. They're going to push you with their legs. Whoa. Holy shit. That's brutal. It is brutal. But if you are nice, then we can pad you the normal way. <laughs> uh, and not only the normal way, we can name our children after your name. Mm. We can name your children after you because your legacy needs to live on. Mm. So you, in Kenya or in Africa, the whole of Africa actually, character is extremely important. You need to have the right character because character, without character, you are nothing. Man, that is not true here. <laughs> <laughs> character is like a is a weakness. Like being a being a kind, good person can really. Um, I don't want to say cripple. That's the wrong. I don't know. It's paying off for Saint Bernard. Um, in parts. Yeah. Yeah. In, but but in you're chunks. usually considered like a like a dupe or or easily taken advantage of. Yeah. Well, it, and it's it, not. Yeah. I mean, he he's beloved by a small sector hmm. of the population, but it hasn't exactly led to his wild success uh, prior to. I mean, he's been yet. in. He's 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 80 years old, and he's just now finally getting like a decent amount of recognition for it. But yeah. Either way. Yeah. It's certainly, I would say, uh, having a good character and being likable by your peers um, is not a prerequisite for success in our country, <laughs> to say the least. Yeah, yeah, because uh, really, your economy is capitalist. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, that has a lot to do with how you're going to progress in society and what you're going to become. And uh, in a capitalist society, really, for you to be really rich, uh, there are a lot of people who must be suffering somewhere because of you. Yeah. Mm. Capitalism rules and ruins everything around me. <laughs> so I was so shocked when I met you and I understood how, you know, on the other side of the planet you grew up, like you, you, the first time you wore shoes was like in high school. Oh yeah. You, oh yeah. I, actually my main motivation for going to school was not to be able to get a career, like become an, uh, a PhD or something. I went to school to get shoes. <laughs> <laughs> and you ran. You, you, I, you, I used to run every day to school. Yeah. And ordinarily, many young people in my community are born to take care of cattle because, uh, for instance, when I was being taken to school by my chief and this priest who was a Catholic priest, who was a chase with father, it's like, oh, your son is really smart. We need to start seeing how we can best get use of him to be useful to mankind. We want him to go to school and later he can become a father, which is a Catholic priest, which actually I didn't become later on because now I'm married. If I did, I wouldn't be married. Um, so, uh, what happened was that, uh, uh, during that whole process of becoming, uh, uh, entangled with the Catholic Church and I was being helped to become what I have become to be, uh, there are a lot of things, there are a lot of things, but one thing that I never planned on was the fact that I was going to school barefoot. It was called Pogesaka Primary School. It was a DEB, which is like a government school whereby, Almost like 99% of all the kids are walking barefoot. Uh, those who are, who, the remaining percentage are actually not really wearing shoes. They are wearing plastic shoes. Mm -hmm. you, have you ever seen plastic shoes? Is it like a um, like a rubber slipper? Yes. Like if you melt, they can actually melt. Uh -huh. Oh, gosh. They were wearing those. And um, man, even the floor of our classes was dusty. Like 
we had a rooster. I was a class prefect in uh, grade two, whereby I have a rooster of who should sweep the class and sprinkle it with water to prevent dust each mm, day. Mm, mm. I really thought you were saying there was like a rooster living in your classroom. Uh, <laughs> yeah. No, like a roster, like a, yeah. like a list. A roster. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. So, yeah, we ha- I, had, I, I had that. So we know today, so and so will be the one sprinkling the class with water and then sweeping it. So it's clean, mm. you know. And I have so many friends from, from West Africa whose case is the same as mine. I am from East Africa, but I did not have a desk to sit on in school. I was sitting on the floor. And my my, my, my legs, the thighs, were my, like, my desk, mm. right? My desk, yeah. where I'm writing from. And uh, my first day of school, I did not even write on a book. I was writing on the floor, like on the dust. I wrote 1 to 10 on the dust where you can just use your hands to, to flatten it. it, erase it, and write too properly. You, you see? Oh, those kind of stuff. Mm. And I earned everything, I think, <laughs> up to this level, including my shoes. Actually, <laughs> I, I'm now working with another uh, professor from Brown University to write a book, and the book is called I Earned My Shoes. Um, nice. Basically because having walked barefoot until high school and having known that one day when I went to a local market and I noticed that some students were visiting the local market and they were from another high school and all those kids had shoes on their feet. And I was like, is this what happens when you go to high school? You must have shoes. And I said, oh yeah, they have shoes when they go to high school. So I was like, I must work hard, go to high school. That's the way I'm going to get shoes. Nice. And, and you were, my shoes. And you were running like four miles each way. Each way. And along the the section of the area which I had to run on was a tarmac road connecting one county to another. Tarmac roads are not really nice to walk on. They are rough. Mm. And, and hot, they can be I hot. They yeah. can be very hot. Yeah. See, so you know that. So at one point in my life, my feet were like having a lot of gullies. These days, they are nice and smooth. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's uh, when uh, the place where David and I went to college, which is a small liberal arts school, here's just a, a a fascinating example of privilege and the forms that it takes. Uh, we were like well known for going barefoot. Um, it was quite common for people to not wear. I, I in fact graduated I, when I walked across the stage. I did not wear shoes to my graduation as sort oh, of wow. a nod to the fact that that was. Mm. Um, Where was that? This was in Sarasota, Florida. Wow. So it was very, very common for students to like go to classes and, you know, just like generally I was barefoot. The only times I really wore shoes reliably was if it was cold out, which was approximately a week and a half every year, and uh, when I went to work. And so, anyway, like, there was something about, it was almost like a status symbol to be able to not wear shoes. Uh, it's, it's kind of to hard school. to school. Yeah, to yeah. school. Yeah. But, I, I, but I, you had shoes at home, but mostly it was normal not to wear those shoes until it's cold. Yeah. yeah. Or unless you had to go, like, into the quote-unquote real world. Um yeah. I, I had professors that wouldn't wear shoes. It's legal, yeah. folks. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I never knew that about anything in the United States. Now that's, I know. That's quite rare. That is an, I would say that's not at all the norm. It was a very sort of niche cultural practice at yeah. our school. Well, um, like so many instances of, of wealth and privilege, like you, it, it's sort of like a horseshoe theory thing where like you can, you're, you're so insulated from the consequences of, of reality and the world that, you can just like forego things that most people 
see as either aspirational or like necessary. Yeah. And you just yeah. Like, I don't even need that. I and it's just the walk built around. environment too. Yeah. Like you can walk on nice, soft, well manicured green mm, grass that's yeah. very cool to the touch. You walk mm. on these pavers that are mm. the only place where you really had to be careful being barefoot was um, this one place on campus <laughs> where it was a courtyard and the tiles that they had used were these dark red terracotta, actually indoor purpose tiles. Yeah. So it, it was, the whole area was designed by the famous modernist architect I.M. Pei. We love him, folks. Yeah. And, and uh, he, the, the story was that he insisted on this specific kind of tile that was very inappropriate for the region. It was treacherous when it had rained, which it rains all the fucking time in Florida. (laughs) So very slippery. You would bust your ass. If you fell on this tile, it was very painful, even dangerous. And in the summer, it was so, if it was sunny out, the the tile was so hot that you would scald your feet. Um, And yeah, because it was so normal to walk around everywhere barefoot. Uh, so there, so it was outlined by these white tiles that were elevated, and so people would walk on the white tiles uh, in the summer. Yeah. Very, yeah. But you know, like the student, the, stu- yeah, the, the student health center would be overrun the very first couple days, like the first two weeks of class. Like all these young uh, hippie kids, like walking around barefoot with, and they burn their feet. Oh. Yeah, like serious <laughs> burns on your feet. Yeah, like they'd be in the the, yeah. the, the wellness center. Like, yeah, not, yeah. not tough enough. Yeah. I burned my feet quite a few times. Yeah, wow. yeah, yeah. So, so it, it's very interesting seeing how close we have become. Yeah. Uh, um, also, in terms of like, I'm thinking about what Americans do, like uh, snowboarding and things like that, and uh, how that relates to in Africa when it rains. And then you just, uh, you have to use your paddocks to skate, uh, whereby you go to a banana plantation and you cut a banana, uh, and then you get a trunk of a banana and peel it and sit on it and you slide down the hill with it. And sometimes that banana peel can go off the rail and you are, you are just alone with your, you, with your, uh, with your pants and you are sliding down and it gets Everything you become Oof. like air. Yeah. <laughs> it was so cool. I, like I miss those days. <laughs> yeah, sure, sure. Well, yeah. I, you know, I was just remarking uh, uh, earlier when I was uh, introducing you to, to how, uh, even though we grew up so totally differently, like, you know, different cultures, different geographies, everything else, we both in our adult lifetimes have uh, independently arrived at a very similar, like, ethic and global worldview politic of like egalitarian internationalist humanism and just seeing the value of all humans as being equal and how we're all, um, you know, have a shared fate and plight, you know, in the material conditions of, you know, the planet and our relationship to each other. Um, and you know, I just wanted to ask, do you think that that's, um, incredibly unusual for someone uh like com- from kenya to to develop that or is that something that you know the rest of the world outside of the u.s is uh much closer to uh i think it's part of being humanity it, it's part of being human beings in the sense that you are able to feel for one another and uh, there are elements like in africa which we are so much indoctrinated against uh, for instance things like gayism uh not yeah. A man not being able to move to another with a, with, a, with a woman is like seen as really evil. So there are things I struggle against. For instance, um, people are not straight. I struggle so much against that. And I will say this, that having an education has really helped me uh, to uh, rewire my mental capabilities. Uh, because uh, even even up until I came to the United States, really, I couldn't imagine how a man can move to another man 
and a, a lady with another lady that that's, that was like impossible until you know I had to uh, learn and acquire the power of listening and realize oh actually nobody is protesting because I am straight right mm -hmm. and I shouldn't be able to protest another human being for for that human being being what he or she is and also all this kind of stuff so there are elements that are as a result of my way my my own way of upbringing and there are others that are as a result of education and that's why mm. i think education is very important and you had also mentioned that um the uh, yeah. tribe that you're from is very gendered in terms of um yeah. like uh, the both like hierarchy of power yes. but also of uh labor like the, yeah. the women do pretty much all oh, the farming yeah. oh yeah like all the hard like yeah, backbreaking everything. work women do like 80 percent of the work is done by women which is really sad like looking at it right now for me from a perspective of where i'm sitting on right now it's really sad on what we do to our women uh for instance i, I literally like cook like every day right and me cooking like every day is a source of concern to many of my friends in Kenya. Yeah, your father, <laughs> like, right? So, yeah, like my father has like barely cooked like three times in entire in, in his entire life. He'd be like, My son cooks? My son cooks? Is he married again? Like, what's the purpose of having a woman in your life if you are going to cook? And that is the kind of life women in Africa live. That they are there to cook from these men who can't even stand up and cook for themselves. For the rest of their lives. I mean, like, you're coming from the garden, you have all been working the whole day, you're back home tired, and uh, a man sits and uh, is asking, Where is that food? And, and, and it is the woman to come in and go to cook, to cook and bring food to this man. And so it, it's, um, it's very saddening, especially for those who have gone beyond elementary level of education to still see them asking me, like, Hey, bro, how is the USA? How are you doing? And I'm like, hey, I'll answer you back in a moment. I'm now cooking. I'm like, oops, you are cooking? Is your woman sitting on you? I mean, like, no, it's just that I know I have a stomach and I know I need to eat too. And it's <laughs> yeah, plus it's fun, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, and also like cooking isn't drudgery. Like, it, it is like, really really fun. I love it. Yeah. It, it, it brings, you know, there are some skills that are in your plate, some ideas that like, you know, you want to um, get some things out of your head, some ideas of, you know, cooking with your heart. Mm, That's what mm. I call it. And you, you're also talking about land holding and how your your sisters... Um, uh, yeah, they can't get my land. Yeah. Uh, basically, what that means uh, is that um, Kenya is very patriarchal. Our whole existence is very patriarchal. I'm the only son of my family. I have four sisters. And none of my sisters has a stake in our land. When my father goes, the whole land belongs to me. Now I'm trying to do it differently. And how I want to do it differently is that I want my sisters to take the land which belongs to me. I want to give them this land. But as long as my father is alive, he's not going to allow it. He's like, all this belongs to you. Your sisters can't get this because they're married. If they're married, their property is the property of their husbands. Their husbands hold that stake. You know, it's not theirs, but of course they're married. So that is between them. But mine belongs to you, not your sisters. When we map the family tree, the genealogy does not go through females. Our genealogies go through males. Mm. When, you're mapping, uh, when you're mapping the family tree. And now I'm trying to change that and say, you know what? Even in the first place, I don't need land. I don't need property. And I know the people who need it the most. My sisters need it the most. I want to give it to them. 
So now like in July, now I have to go and talk to my father and tell him, dad, you know what? This amount of tea from this point to this point should belong to sister A. This amount of tea here at this plantation should, belong, should go to this one. So that they also have a way to take care of themselves. Oh, speaking of which, we 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 got some. Oh yeah, some, I some brought tea. some Kenyan tea. <laughs> so so I neglected to brew it yeah. for for yeah. today, but uh, we'll, we'll have that maybe for the bonus. Yeah, I, uh, um, I, I actually this is interesting because I just finished in my um, I teach uh, geography and planning yeah. at University at Albany, and I just finished uh, last Thursday in my international urban planning course. Uh, reading uh, Sylvia Sylvia Federici's work on uh, international land rights, and we talk about how well, sometimes well-meaning, but sometimes very empire-building mm. organizations will go into uh, African nations and uh, try to huge scare quotes modernize farming, mm-hmm. and uh, and because even though eighty percent of uh, conservative estimate: eighty percent of farming in sub-Saharan Africa is um, done by women. Yeah, they will instantly go to the men to talk about, you know, like how land is being used and what sort of agricultural practices should be developed. And yeah. it's it's really it's just it, one of those examples of you know like uh, patriarchy yeah. or you know, like mel- melding together from you know like the from Africa and Europe and the Americas and just saying like you know even though women do all the work it's men gonna, like the men are yeah. going to talk about men how, do all how, the talking yeah. women do all the work yeah it's so bizarre yeah it's a, it's a, it's, <laughs> a, it's, a, it's a, like the dog driving the car meme and it's like i have no idea what i'm doing <laughs> <laughs> and it's another like example of how we often build um, the the interests of power are to build narratives that say we have these power structures because they're the most efficient and effective way to do like the business of living and of civilization, right? Capitalism is the most efficient, effective mode of production the world has ever seen. Patriarchy is based on like natural biological differences between men and women. The hierarchies. And, being, and yet, like if you have an example such as like agricultural, the, the, the practical doing of agriculture being done by women and yet the kind of logistical like power structure of doing like that is that is counterintuitive and like more inefficient than an egalitarian way of doing it same with capitalism like capitalism is incredibly wasteful we know there are millions of ways in which it's incredibly inefficient and so that's kind of like as Zizek would say like pure ideology right like there's no logic there's no like actual practical logic underlying these modes of power they are just ideology so this is um Pulled this from a, a Australian broadcasting company, the the other ABC, yeah, news, and uh, so this is a uh, Dale Nimmo, an associate professor in ecology at Charles Stewart University. And he's commenting on several stories that went viral about wombats opening up their homes, their warrens, their underground warrens, to other animals during the Australian brush fires. Mm-hmm. And the, the 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 stories are like these benevolent wombats are letting in. Uh, other animals that's into that's their... the name of my new ska band benevolent yeah. wombat, benevolent wombat. <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah and so here's the thing about science right is that it it has an ideology to it and, it, and oh, like yeah. rationalism looks very specific on like well they're not actually being benevolent they're being uh rational or whatever so this story i should say that the title of this abc news article is viral stories of wombats sheltering other wildlife from the bushfires aren't entirely true. But the only part that isn't entirely true 
is that wombats are just like such gentle creatures that they don't really notice and their and their warrens are so big they bi- they build these like enormous underground facilities that they don't usually notice when other animals are just like living under them so like no they haven't they aren't like going over to wallabies and be like please get underground with me quickly mm-hmm. but they but they also like don't do anything if another animal like jumps into their warren and like stays there and rides out a brush fire so trying to draw a scientific distinction between empathy and helping your fellow <laughs> yeah. animals and just being the chill bro with like a nice gastrome yeah. and not really caring if you crash. Yeah. yeah. That is so science. Like that is just classic <laughs> science. That that has to be a distinction that's drawn for the purposes of what discounting a narrative of empathy shared among living creatures. Like I guess yeah. we just we can't allow people to make that assumption. Yeah. So the, the the quote is wombats do not heroically round up helpless animals during a brush fire and lead them to safety. But wombats do help other animals in a different way, even if it's not their intention. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, you're like we can, we you can know, totally... I can help you even if it's not my intention to help you. <laughs> yeah, right, yeah. yeah. So we can read intention into wombats. Uh, wombats can emerge as accidental heroes during a brush fire <laughs> by providing a safe refuge underground for other wildlife. Wombat warrens, networks of interconnecting burrows are large and complex and considerably shielded from the above-ground environment. Small mammals are known to use wombat burrows to survive an inferno. Mm-hmm. And there's like all sorts of stuff that you that or, or sorts of animals that um, can live in wombat burrows uh, temporarily, including uh, <laughs> skinks, birds, which includes little penguins. Yeah, that's like saying you can use my structures, but you can't use me. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, wallabies. Wait, hey, hey, yeah. Fucking penguins. Yeah. Are gonna, oh my god. Little penguins. And they also these. They're sometimes wet burrows, right? Like the little fine groundwater. Yeah. Like they, they yeah. they're almost like uh, water diviners. So that's yeah. what I I had read that they were built digging wells. Yeah. For, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, sand swimming skinks, barking geckos, cheetahs. I don't know what those are, and uh, hopping mice are all. Um, in in these burrows fuck yeah yeah um so uh we first let's just give like a huge thanks to richard for joining us on the pod today it was such a pleasure thank you this has been fun yeah Yeah. it was really wonderful to have you um you are uh we're not i'm not doing kropotkin this week because i just haven't had time to record it i'm on deadline for a book i've been really pushing hard uh volunteering for the new hampshire primary and um, I just haven't had time to do it. So we'll get, we'll, I will have a n- new um, installment of Kropotkin coming out Stay next tuned. week. Stay tuned, folks. Um, and I actually think the next chapter might be pretty long, which mm. is maybe why I've been putting off recording it. But either mm. way, we'll, I don't know. We'll see you next week. Um, and in the meantime, uh, yeah, I don't know. You can find us on Twitter. <laughs> Ironweed Spot. You can find us on Instagram. Ironweed Spot. You can send us an email at ironweedspod at gmail.com. <laughs> That's um, the deal. Yeah. Please consider supporting us on Patreon because, um, you know, not being able to do the Kropotkin this week, I won't be able to devote as much time to the bonus episode this week. And uh, your support on Patreon will free me up a little bit so that we wouldn't be running into these problems where I'm incredibly overextended and can't really give as much of my heart and soul and body and mind to the pod. Um, so, yeah, consider supporting us. Patreon.com slash Ironweeds. And that's it. Yeah. Thanks yeah. again to Richard. 
Thank you. Andrew. Thank, Thank you so you. much for coming. Thoughts and prayers for Thank brother you. Bernard Thank going into it, New Hampshire. It has been wonderful. Yeah. yeah. Very, yeah. very lovely to have you. Yeah. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye.